Welcome to our weekly tech review, where we explore the latest trends, news and updates from the world of technology. This podcast is the perfect source for staying up to date with what is important to know right now. You can watch all episodes on YouTube or listen to us on all major podcast platforms such as Spotify and Apple Podcasts while you work out, drive or maybe even travel through space. With me today I have Henrike from Freetech Academy and I am Tarek from Ideas Engineering and today we are joined by a special guest, Dr. Amelie Schönenwald, who is reserve astronaut at the European Space Agency. Welcome Amelie. <laughs> Before we talk to Amelie, let's have a quick look at what is happening in the news. And coincidentally, we found some news about space. SciTechDaily.com reports about harnessing photosynthesis, which would be a green energy solution for Martian occupation and space exploration, of course. And here scientists are working on sustainable technologies to harvest solar power in space. The research focuses on using photosynthesis, similar to how plants are creating energy on Earth, to develop artificial photosynthesis artificial photosynthesis devices that can convert water into oxygen using sunlight and recycled carbon dioxide. These devices could be installed on the Moon and Mars to power rockets and life support systems, including oxygen production and carbon dioxide dioxide recycling. The technology has the potential to make space travel more efficient and reduce the weight of traditional systems currently used on the International Space Station. The insights gained from this study can be also applied to optimizing similar devices for Earth applications and understanding the performance for traditional solar, space, solar cells in space. The study quantifies the potential of these devices for extraterrestrial use and provides initial design guidelines for their implementation. This research project was funded by the European Space Agency through the Open Space Innovation Platform. And I personally never thought that this kind of technology would be actually relevant for real use cases. But now that we are kind of already building bases on Moon and Mars, suddenly this kind of theoretical uh, applications uh, becomes super, super relevant. And Amelie, I know uh, that you know a little bit about biology, right? <laughs> I hope so, yeah. <laughs> Please tell us a little bit about uh, what, uh, how, what you are doing and uh, how you came to ESA. As you know, my name is Amelie. I am in my early 30s and I joined the ESA Reserve Astronaut Corps in November 2022 with another 16 people and I'm very happy to be there. And you were asking about my background and my biology and biotechnology background. So I, I studied biotechnology and biochemistry because I was really into that while I was at school. So I just decided to continue my passion for these subjects. And because I couldn't get enough, I even did my master's and finished by doing a PhD in the end. And during my studies, I focused on a variety of different topics. I was into viruses, into antibiotics, into little bacteria and everything around that. So I'm really, really curious about what is going on in life sciences. And do you consider yourself as a space biologist? <laughs> Not by training, but of course, in space, a lot of different scientists and engineers with different backgrounds are needed because it's just such a wholesome topic where everybody can continue to work on that topic because it's just so diverse. Right. And when we talk about uh, colonization of Mars, for example, would this be something that you would be interested in, like living and working with, bio with your bio biology background on Mars? It is really intriguing. 
Mars is quite far away, though, at this very point. <laughs> so right now, uh, ESA and also NASA, so the space agencies of Europe and uh, the American continents, they are really curious about going to moon first. And Mars, of course, it's on the horizon. But first, I'd be interested to go and see what the moon has to offer. Right. Henrike, you actually met uh, Amelie earlier, right? Like not earlier today, but uh, previously <laughs> at another event. Yeah, actually, I can't believe it's already almost half a year ago. I think it was in February um, yeah. where we met at ESA Aerospace, and um, which was a pretty insightful full day to, um, I just mentioned before we started recording that I used to work for Airbus and always being at a um, at a production site and have a look around and um, see how big or not so big those uh, parts of the rockets are. It's always impressive. And um, yeah, that's where we met the first time. So, Amelie, uh, is this something that you are doing regularly, uh, visiting like space companies like ESA Aerospace? <laughs> I mean, nothing is regular in my life right now, so I can't say that. <laughs> But this is actually my first real podcast where I'm featured, apart really? from the other time I visited you. <laughs> Amazing. You will be like our, uh, we're happy to have you as our regular guest in, in whatever format we have. <laughs> I love that. Absolutely. And when you then actually travel to space uh, please listen to our podcast so that we can claim to be the first podcast uh, listened to in space <laughs> because we already do kind of but we're just waiting for the day that it's actually true <laughs> right right uh, but we are actually talking about this interview for quite a long time and uh, discussing um, to, to actually talk to an astronaut and so it's, it's really great to have you here on the podcast and um, I'm really really interested in thinking Thinking about this aspect of living and working in space and uh, this industry is becoming bigger and bigger. Um, what do you think would be the most challenging aspect of living and working in space? Oh, there's a lot of challenges, <laughs> but I, I'd actually say there's three major challenges. The first one being the medical aspects, of course. The second one is space debris and the third one is psychological barriers and Going back to the medical aspects, I mean, you've heard about it, you've read about it, but it's it's a mess. The human body is just not made for space and weightlessness. It wrecks the body, it makes certain immune cells just unable to do their jobs. Some of the red blood cells explode. So I'm just, uh, I'm not using the medical terms here. It, I just wanna, <laughs> want you to picture what happens. It even gives you kidney stones and in the end it makes your heart go lazy. So all of these things are just not really good for our body. So that's one of the most challenging aspects, especially when you think about long-term travel, such as going to Mars. And then the second one that I mentioned is space debris. This is, of course, a huge problem. Even by now, the International Space Station, they have to do maneuvers to just go around and go detours just not to collide with space debris that's currently floating yeah. around, which is basically just old, defunct, human-made objects in space, like old satellites that broke down that just keep floating around forever well, not not really forever but for a very long time and they just keep adding up and adding up it's just so much out there and i think in the future it will be a huge challenge to actually fly to space and not hit any of those objects and then yeah uh, the last aspect i said was a psychological one so you're way away from your family from your friends away from normal human life you basically have to function every single day and you have to 
not make any mistakes because every single mistake you make is potentially hazardous for not only yourself but the entire mission and everybody else and of course not having fresh food or salads is okay for a couple of weeks but i guess after a couple of years you just really crave something green and crunchy yeah totally. <laughs> sounds like This research about photosynthesis in space uh, might not only be valuable for energy and uh, oxygen, but actually for green stuff to eat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just the other day, I think it was last episode or I don't know, Tarek, correct me if I'm wrong. We had these um, new robots um, and talked about them like they are triangle robots, 2D, and they can assemble and disassemble to 3D objects. And um, they are um, like origami robots. Um, we always talk about origami like space products uh, popping up everywhere. Um, and we discussed like the likelihood of them being the first to colonize Mars and prepare everything because they can work autonomously and prepare everything for us humans to then arrive later. And I'm just uh, wondering, like, how likely do you think is such a scenario that really they do the groundwork before we come along? And do you actually, you as a um, soon-to-be astronaut, would you prefer this actually compared to you being the first to be there and, and start building everything from scratch, but having like robots there first really assemble the station and, you know, preparing everything. So you come along and you can move into your Mars house and, and start working. <laughs> <laughs> so there's always this discussion about humans in space versus robots in space. And I don't think it's a discussion between the two. I think they always go hand in hand. One actually needs the other to work properly. So when you ask me about if I wanted the robot to prepare my house, make my bed before I come, I actually like that because robots, they have such a, such a diverse set of capabilities that we humans do not have. They, they don't need food. Maybe, okay, they need batteries, but there's solar light that can power them. They can prepare everything. And I actually, I think robots are not only useful, but they're a necessity for human space travel. That's right. I mean, if I, rem I remember <laughs> the first astronauts uh, that traveled to the moon, they didn't have anything uh, like that. I mean, they had computers and was kind of necessary for all the calculations. But basically, these astronauts were uh, traveling completely without AI, without uh, any kind of this uh, automation. And so I could really imagine that uh, the next generation of astronauts who are actually going to the moon and live there for a while, they it sounds like very comfortable having all this AI and robotic support. But all altogether, as you just described, space travel sounds terrible and terrifying. When did you decide to become an astronaut and actually do that? <laughs> <laughs> well uh, i don't know if, if there's a moment where i can say that's the moment i decided to become an astronaut i think it's a very human thing to to love adventures to to travel around to explore even think about children like when i was a child i just loved going outdoors i didn't have a computer or phone by the time <laughs> but i loved going outdoors and just run around in the fields and the forest and maybe look at the birds at the bugs and everything and why is that because it was interesting i was curious i wanted to learn new things and then at the end of the day i would grab a book and find out which bug it was or which fly i just identified And I think that's a very, very human thing to just learn and want to learn. So exploration, I think it has always been in us. 
going back to the sailors and the like James Cook time and <laughs> going to Neil Armstrong and all, everybody who's like on the verge of s something new these days, whether it's space exploration or some unknown other ventures like the deep sea um, or, or deserts. So it's it's very normal. And I think if I had the chance to apply to become an astronaut earlier, I would have done it. Unfortunately, <laughs> right. they only announce it every 10 years or so. so. <laughs> yeah, it's very rare, unfortunately. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. At least at ESA. Uh, one of these aspects of living today is that uh, there are also these, let's say, um, not academies, but uh, other organizations that are preparing to send a lot of staff to to space. And I could imagine that uh, apart from the Artemis missions, um, there's going to be a completely new industry of people working in space, maintaining satellites as long as they are not like fully automated or these new generation of low orbit space stations um, that are now uh, taken over by the by the private industry um, yeah uh, but but uh, you are not working full-time as an astronaut as as far as I know how does this work with your with your normal day job yeah um, so answering this question I have to go back to November 2022 <laughs> when the 17 of us, the new class of ESA astronaut from the European Space Agencies, were standing on stage in Paris and the veil was uh, lifted and the public knew our, picture, our faces, five of us actually started training immediately. And uh, or immediately, they started training in April this year. So now they're like in there and doing their diving lessons and they learn everything about the ISS. And the rest of us, uh, the other 11 plus one para astronaut, we're the reserves, which means we just continue our normal day as it was before we were selected, more or less, because on the side we're being interviewed sometimes. Sometimes we go to podcasts and uh, other people, they, they actually appeared on TV and we get invited to really cool events. Um, I, I actually was invited to Berlin to speak to politicians. So it's really, really interesting. But of course, we still continue with our jobs and we just have to try to manage to put everything together and not my, make our employers angry. <laughs> but how is that but how is that actually handled like in terms of I mean you you have a full-time job so going to those press events or traveling uh, throughout the country to do these things um, do you have to take holidays um, to do that so is like actually all your annual holiday being um, spent on on these ESA activities or is there a special agreement between your employer and ESA to To kind of include that in your in your work time so for me currently it is uh, basically my, I work full-time and that's it so everything I do is in my free time after work on the weekend it's very easy to do everything online because I don't actually have to travel anywhere but uh, if there's a full day event I will take a day off And I mean, it's it's still fun, right? There needs to be a balance between my free time and all these uh, activities that I'm doing. But still, the activities are fun. So it's it's kind of like a hobby that's very time extensive. And for now, I really enjoy it because I can still go on actual holidays and not appear anywhere in the public. How closely do you follow um, the Artemis missions? This is like a very regular topic with us and uh, Artemis is going to send people to the moon. Is this something where you are sitting in front of your TV and, <laughs> and also uh, watch every single rocket launch? 
Um, as as much as I can, I will do that if it, if it doesn't interfere with everything else and my responsibilities, of course. But for example, the Artemis II mission, I know that there's four astronauts, there's even a woman aboard. Uh, they will go around the moon for 10 days. And that's super exciting because we haven't had that for decades. And it's like the second time we go back to the moon. And this time, maybe in another Artemis mission, there will be someone else except for an American US citizen. So that's really exciting. But uh, of course, I will follow it. And I followed it so far. And what's really curious is that there's already one of the reserve corps who was on stage in Paris with me, who actually got selected to go on a mission. So that's really interesting. And of course, I follow that really closely as well. So so how does this work? So you have your like uh, emergency phone always uh, <laughs> by your side. So at some point of time, there might be a call uh, getting you on board of one of the spacecrafts or how, how does this work? Well, it hasn't happened so often so far. It happened once for one of the reserve astronauts. It was uh, the Swedish one, Marcus. So he was called and he immediately started training more or less with a couple of days in between. So I... We were really surprised because we, he will actually fly before the career astronauts who were selected. And ah, I'm so excited for him. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yes, so we basically have our phones handy, but all of us do have our phones handy at all times of the day anyways. And in case they don't reach me, I'll just call back and I'm ready <laughs> all the time. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I personally, I have no idea how this uh, selection process and the training itself is, is looking um, like for, for the people actually going through with this. Um, what would you say is the most impressive thing that you as an astronaut have, ha has to do or to train for or the biggest challenge? So you're asking about the training. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I cannot tell you first person because I haven't trained yet. But uh, for the training, I think... Uh, The most challenging part in the beginning is that all the European Space Agency astronauts have to move to Cologne, which is, it doesn't sound too crazy for somebody who's actually German and lives in Germany, but uh, they come from all different countries across Europe and they, they have to move to Cologne, leave their family behind, their old lives behind. They need to maybe learn German, <laughs> but they just are plunging into a whole new lifestyle in a new environment. Of course, they're really good at doing that because they've already prove, prove that they do so but going to cologne and 100 immerse yourself in the astronaut lifestyle i think that's that's the biggest challenge in the beginning but of course the training it's hard it's cumbersome you have to travel a lot but you're also challenged every day because everybody around you is basically teaching you at every single moment and you want to be good at that and i think that's that's a pressure you put on yourself because you want to be better than everybody else thinks you are because you're very ambitious as an astronaut so i think that's that's mostly it but also being far away from family and friends that might be very psychologically impacting <laughs> Just as I said before, the long-term mission, it already starts in the training. You're far away for a very long time. Yeah, yeah, I could imagine. And I, I know for a fact that a lot of people uh, listening to this podcast are very interested in traveling to space at some point of time. Um, what are like the, the most important requirements that you have to bring to actually qualify for a role like that? So for, for the application at the European Space Agency, so the first thing is you need a European passport <laughs> and preferably a passport of one of the 22 or 23 member states, depending on how you count it. So uh, I was lucky because I have a German passport, so I'm a German citizen. And 
Germany, France and Italy being the the countries that pay the most money, of course, there's a higher chance that they will actually select astronauts from those countries. So that's that's already good for, for people of those countries. What you also need is a, a master's degree and a couple of years of uh, work experience. So I think it's uh, two or three years. And uh, that's one of the thing, which also means you have to be at the right age at the right moment. And again, here I was extremely lucky. So usually astronauts are being selected at the age of 30 to 35, sometimes a bit older, as you saw with uh, Markus Wand from Sweden. He's 42 or 43. Uh, the same for the French girl, uh, Sophie. She's also 42. So that's a really good age, sometimes between 30 and 35, but also 40 is good. So you have to be lucky again. And everything else is just how, how you behave, more or less. Are you a good team player? Are you a nice person? Are you emotionally stable? Can you deal and handle with stress? Have you experienced really hard, hardship in your life and you learned how to deal with it? Mm. Is there any trauma hidden somewhere in your <laughs> in your brain that you, you're trying to hide? So you need to be very, very open with yourself and to yourself and you need to be really reflected and you actually have to show them that you are that person that you're pretending to be. But also, of course, you need to know a lot about the technology background. You need to know your rockets. You need to know your ESA missions. And you need to know how to deal with nasty questions from journalists as well. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's very, very good. But I think this is something that a lot of people are underestimating. I mean, uh, the, the cliche is that you have to be in peak physical form like like a super soldier because you're going to run over the mars surface and at the same time of course like academically um on on the very top uh, of your classes because you have to have at least three doctorates uh, about different fields but what you are saying is totally true the psychological aspect of being mentally stable when you are put into a rocket <laughs> for a extended uh, period of time together with other people i think this is probably probably the the most uh critical aspect of what people have to bring with them right yeah i mean look at me do i look like a bodybuilder i i don't i, don't. <laughs> I mean it's a podcast people cannot see me right now but you can right. see pictures of me online i i'm not a bodybuilder i'm not a top physique but i'm i'm healthy i'm fit and that's i think it's uh, the main important thing that you you're not unhealthy you need to take care of your body you need to eat healthily at least most of the times <laughs> <laughs> but you don't have to be a superhero you mentioned that you um yeah learn how to or like you have to deal with nasty questions from journalists is that also then a training you get right after you've been selected to become an astronaut reserve that you get like a like an initial media training to prepare you for those uh, occasions or is that also something you just um, by nature are very talented at and you're now dealing with it yourself so the first step i think is that isa during the selection process actually only select those people who are apt to do so but then of course we got a two-day training before we went on stage in paris so they they taught us how how to handle questions especially political ones because that's something i I don't like so much in public to talk about politics, I try to avoid that and how to avoid these questions, how to answer when they are being asked. And then the third aspect again in the end is you just practice, just like now I'm practicing. Every every interview I give, it's practice. 
So we're every step we take, it's a it's a learning process. We we grow, we learn, and I think after a while it just comes natural. I, I'm still in the process, <laughs> but if you if you talk to Alexander Gerst or Matthias Maurer or any other astronaut, they're just so good at it, and they never really had intense training. It was just them practicing. And probably also a bit of like what they also looked at during the selection process that you are already exactly. kind of talented to do so you have it in you kind of but have you met like uh, annoying journalists or uh, <laughs> people who are targeting like with with mean questions no not yet actually so far everybody has been really friendly and nice so that's that's one thing that i'm really grateful for when when you're out there as a reserve astronaut or an astronaut people are usually very friendly it's different for politicians i think yeah <laughs> for, <laughs> most likely for politicians they just take the bad quotes and for us they take the good quotes and just uh, disregard the other things i say and sometimes it's nonsense so it's really good yeah yeah but the the one actual mean question that that i regularly discuss in terms of space exploration is uh the investment of resources and of course this is not something that uh astronauts have to have to like be accounted for um but this is something with all of our problems that we have on our planet um the question of is it justified to invest all of this money uh, mm. that we are doing um, or maybe too much, maybe not enough into space exploration? Um, do you have something like a gut feeling if uh, we are doing enough or too much in terms of space uh, research and exploration? This is always a question and doesn't really matter which realm of science. It's always about how much funding do you give to which part of science and space science, of course, or all the research revolving around it it's only one part there's also biological sciences as i know there's a uh, battery research there's uh, other technologies and i think all of them have have a fair share of importance and it's important to put it put it out there so i i'm really happy i'm not the person who to decide how much money to allocate right. to any one of those but of course for for space uh, there's a couple of arguments that you probably already know about that justify it so I just want to highlight three of them. So the one thing we already discussed earlier, it's, it's about culture. It's in our human psychology to, to explore, to travel, to be adventurous, to, to venture to new realms, to just grow and learn again. Of course, it's, that's not a hard fact. So the other hard fact that I would like to mention is just science and technology. So, of course, we spend a lot of money in developing new I don't know, rockets, engines, batteries, solar panels, all of these different things. And in the end, it's supposed to be for space travel. But then again, many of these technologies can be and will be adopted in actual Earth environments. So let's talk just about batteries, for example. They were developed for, for space travel. But in the end, we use batteries for almost every single device now on Earth. Or yeah. small cameras, like in smartphones, Everybody has them in their pocket. Some people even have several smartphones like yeah. lying around and we all use them. And they were actually initially developed for space travel because they're small, they're still good. And there's a variety of examples going on like this or baby formula, food for, for infants. It was developed for astronauts in the beginning <laughs> and a, a long, long list of medical devices. So it actually has its benefits. And in the end, one of the things that I like the most is uh, the secularity of what you have to do in space. So you need to be independent. There's no new resources you can put inside it, which 
as actually really good for sustainable and green developments on Earth as well. So we can use all of these technologies, like just solar panels, for example. We can use them here as well. Of course, the most important question, uh, do you have any advice for our <laughs> young space enthusiasts who are listening right now, uh, who want to be astronauts, how they, how they should proceed uh, in, their, in their quest? It's a very simple advice. You just have to do what you love. Because I don't think it's feasible to, to study something you, you don't really like or you're not really into it just because you think maybe someday you can become an astronaut. It's still very unlikely to become an astronaut. Even, even me, like I was selected and I don't know if I will ever fly. So even if you are selected, it's just so unlikely. And uh, that's why I think you still have to focus on what you, what you have a passion for. And if this is designing rockets, cool, do that. But if it is medicine, engineering, any other natural science or what, whatever it is, you can still do it. And even if it's something that's not uh, science or engineering, you can still be a teacher or whatever. Because in the past, NASA has also selected citizen scientists or uh, citizens to fly to space. Like recently, I talked to one NASA astronaut and she, she's a teacher. So you can also do that. Just follow your passion in the end. But apart from that, if you want to do the extra step, you can try to work abroad and gather some experience, learn different languages, have a, a cool panel of different hobbies that help you develop different kinds of skills, especially teamwork skills. And in the end, just be a nice person, be a good team player, try to stay sharp in your mind and try to stay healthy. That gives me hope. <laughs> <laughs> All of what you said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think uh, a lot of people are inspired by this kind of advice because it's not like this very strict career path where you have to get all of these check marks done uh, yeah. but just be curious and follow follow your dreams <laughs> exactly <laughs> very, I mean, very nice for me it was exactly the same thing i just did what i wanted to study and uh, i was curious and i just continued and then one day the option of actually applying popped up out of nowhere and like i i never trained specifically for that but looking back of what i did because i loved what i did It just all made sense and it all qualified myself for applying. And here I am today. So you can do the same thing. <laughs> Definitely. Absolutely. So, Amelie, thank you so much for joining us on Tech Review. It was a, a pleasure to have you here and get all of your insights. And of course, I would be very, very happy to have you back at some point of time in the future uh, and talk to you uh, about the latest things that you um, observed and learned through your career in the uh, astronaut reserve. Or so as soon you. as you've been selected and you go on your training, <laughs> then we're here and we have a lot of questions. <laughs> exactly. Or when you're in space, we are open for mm -hmm. live streaming at any time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd love to come back. Thank you for having me. Thank All right. You. So for everyone listening and viewing us right now, see you and hear you next time next week. <laughs> Bye.